Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachna. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Tuesday, May 2nd, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again?, And that chapter of that book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for over 18 years to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also download a whole host of audio files of shows just like this one that have Uh, the record of people actually being stepped through that process and or uh, conversations about how the dynamics of this tool work and how to get most benefit from it. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet, an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We hope you choose to do that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively use these tools in their lives, and secondarily because it tends to lead 
people have comments, questions, answers, or testimonials. And if you have any of that to share with us, please do so. Give us a call at 563-999-3581. When you call that number, if you press 1 on your phone, it will put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. I will turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code, and we can have a conversation. If you would like to get some feedback and you are not able to be with us live or choose not to call in directly, you can send us an email. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org and or you can email genie at j-e-a-n-i-e at whyagain.org. That's w-h-y-a-g-a-i-n dot o-r-g. And we appreciate it if people do any and all of those things because it helps us live into our intention with this work. It makes it far easier for us to know what's working for you, what you're finding of value when we get feedback. So either give us a call or send us an email and let us know how we can support you. Again, the call-in number for the live show is today is 563-999-3581. And if you have a comment or a question, some uh, quite a few people just call that number just to listen through their unlimited long distance on their phone, and that's absolutely fine. And they show up on the switchboard, and they sit there, and they don't raise a hand, and that's just fine. It's a, a very good way to access the show content. If, however, you want to have a comment, question, answer, or testimonial shared with us, please press 1 on your phone when you call in. So here we are on a Tuesday, and that means there will be a support group tonight. That means from 6.30 to 9 p.m. Central Time, you're welcome to join us. All the information you would need to be able to join us absolutely free is available on the MindShiftersAcademy.org webpage. And on Tuesdays and Thursday nights, most Tuesdays and Thursday nights, we have a support group. And it's been running for almost 19 years on Tuesday night, and the better part of 9 or 10 years on Thursday night. So again, please feel free to join us or pass that information along to somebody you think might benefit. And... In that community setting, quite a few people experience that the power and effectiveness of the tools is amplified. And we'd be happy to share that experience with you. Um, We have people who call in on their phone and or do not um, put their video on. So if you wish to remain relatively anonymous you can do that you can just talk and not have your camera on or you can call in on your phone or you can be at your computer and join us with uh, the live video and we'd be happy to have you so what we've been doing um, for a while 
is reading essays from the book by Christian Sundberg, and that book is titled A Walk in the Physical. And um, the last one that I read was related to the difference between intent and action. And I, 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 part of me wants to skip ahead, but I'm just going to go ahead and read. Uh, essay number 49 is titled, You Can Trust Reality. And it reads, You can trust reality. You can trust it completely. Now, on the Internet radio show here called Mindshifters Radio and in any of Dr. Michael Rice's lectures or workshops or, or intensives and in our support group, because it's based on Dr. Michael Rice's work, we use the word actuality for what most people call reality. And in this work, they're using the word reality the same way Dr. Michael Rice would use the word actuality. So to be clear, I will attempt to remember to read the word actuality in place of reality. In Dr. Michael Rice's work, a reality is a picture my mind creates as a best guess. As we talk about, Neil Seth has videos describing how our science today is very clear that each and every one of us is hallucinating our perception or our own individual version of reality. So this, act, this essay reads, in modified form, you can trust actuality, and you can trust it completely. The reason you can trust actuality is that absolutely nothing takes place outside of, quote, natural laws, close quotes. These have been established by source energy. And those laws have all been established from a place of incredible wisdom and love. The ego typically has serious trouble with this. It thinks, well, how can I trust you know, reality or actuality when it's so dangerous? Actuality is cold, merciless, and unrelenting. Actuality has cruel people in it. Actuality is unfair. Actuality is full to the brim with suffering. And thus, the idea of actually trusting actuality seems impossible. However, actuality was built for source by source so that you, as a part of that source energy, consciousness, etc., so that you could experience exactly all that you are experiencing now in your life. Actuality is not some ship adrift out at sea, ready to sink unattended, 
or some happenstance or some forgotten creation. Actuality is perpetually and indefinitely and completely within the loving source that created it. You are in within that loving source as well, even if you're not consciously aware of that fact. How could such a loving source permit us to be in a place where we may experience so much lack of love? Well, you are so loved by source that you've been given the opportunity to temporarily forget that you are unconditionally loved so that you might actually experience real contrast and thereby better experientially understand what love truly is forever. You've been given the gift of the opportunity to, quote, play real life, close quotes. The gift of being able to make meaningful choices and experience the results. The gift of being able to live as someone experiencing defined perspectives and thus a physical actuality. And this physical actuality is simply a stage for that. Its purpose is being fulfilled and that purpose is ultimately meaningful and loving. All the laws that govern the workings of the world do so for the ultimate purposes of source. And all of those are motivated by love, which means they are ultimately for our benefit. For instance, even the most horrendous pain can be a profoundly valuable experience in the grand scheme. As we learn to trust actuality for what it is, it can better work with us to further the grander divine awareness-expanding intentions that elude our limited human minds. Recognize also that the entire stage of actuality takes place within your awareness of it. It is not an independent external thing as it appears on the surface. It is something that takes place within your awareness. The actuality you experience then is a reflection of what you are right now. Allow it to function as the mirror it is meant to be. You can trust the mirror. It's only faithfully serving the purpose of reflecting back to you what you believe about it. Now, this brings me to you know, the, the word mirror and this reference to the life reflecting back to us what we believe about it brings me to one of the, my favorite books of all time, which was The Mirror Theory. And it's one of my favorite books of all time, not because it's such a fabulous book, but because it came into my life at a time when I was in need of it and I was able to let it in, to, to seriously question a number of the things that would have kept me from even reading past the first few pages of a book like that. So I was absolutely in the right place at the right time, and that book landed for me perfectly. And in that book, what we're talking about here in this last paragraph is the theme of the book. 
and that is that the reality I experience is a reflection of who I am and what I hold within me. And when I clear up those less-than-loving things within me, what I experience externally transforms. So, I hope I'm clear about this. I'm not saying everybody needs to go out and read The Mirror Theory because I don't think it was such a fabulous book. I just think it was the perfect book for me at a time in my life when I needed it most. And I'd already done enough emotional work to be able to let it in, to be able to put aside certain beliefs and constrictions and tightnesses within myself. And so... And the essence of the book is right here in this paragraph. The reality we experience is a reflection of what we are, what we're holding inside of us. And this is right in line with Dr. Michael Rice's work and Guy Finley's work and Byron Katie's work and Diedrich Wolzak's work and The Course in Miracles and The Way of Mastery. They're all saying the same thing from a slightly different perspective. And skipping one essay and, and going down to the next one at number 51, because this is what I was just implying, is that if I had not been able to soften and open, if I had not been tilling the soil, so to speak, of my awareness and consciousness by reading a variety of different spiritual and philosophical and psychological books for years, I never would have been able to let myself read or open to what the book The Mirror Theory had to offer. And essay 51 is titled, Rejection Closes the Door, Acceptance Opens It. And the essay reads, You are immortal awareness that surpasses all form. That is not a metaphor or just an abstract concept. You, your true nature, actually surpasses the entirety of your physical experience and all of the form in it. The only reason you may not be aware of that fact is that you've agreed to be bound to the constraints of having a defined experience within form. And that experience requires a limited, physically focused stimulus set. It requires a certain level of understanding and a certain level of memory and lack of memory. The fact that you agreed to have this experience does not change the much more fundamental fact that you actually are an immortal spirit who surpasses all form and whose consciousness contains all form. The experience of form can be very rich, very convincing, and at times very painful. We end up, quite naturally, believing that the scenery of the stage is real. We go very, very deep into the illusion. And as we do, we artificially define ourselves by choosing some form of ideas, identities, and thoughts. 
And we choose those over other form, which is contrasting ideas. This is all expected and natural, except that we've gone so far into the illusion that we've, quote, lost sight of the forest for the trees, close quotes. As the world challenges us deeply, we end up taking shelter within the illusory forms of the ego to stay safe and avoid pain. And as we do that, we naturally end up rejecting parts of our own experience. When you reject your experience, you're choosing illusory form over infinite formlessness. This is because when you reject something, you're choosing to stand up against some form. And again, form here means a thought, an idea, you know, an object, a person, etc. It's all of it is form. When you reject something, you're choosing to stand up against some form, and that can only be done as a form itself. Your consciousness ends up lending credence and therefore solidity to the form that's trying to stand against it and that it is trying to stand against. As the form strengthens by the power of your own thought and what you believe in, so does the typically negative experience that comes with it. For instance, if someone perceives what is occurring in the world as terrible and they reject it, then he or she will be giving energy toward that negative perception and will experience the negative constricting emotions that go along with that rejection. If someone perceives that they must struggle, then they will experience struggle. If someone rejects their body, they will experience it. Their experience in that body will be more difficult. Rejection is a low vibration energy because it is an occurrence of some part of, quote, all that is, close quotes, temporarily turning against itself. I, and Guy Finley has a talk, here's a little sidebar, he has a talk where he has the audience sitting there comfortably, they're taking notes or their hands are in their laps or whatever, and he says, okay, if you're taking notes, put your pen down, and if your hands are in your lap, pick up your hands and place one palm against the other in front of you and now push as hard as you can and try to push away your left hand with your right hand. And with your right hand, you know, push as hard as you can to get the left hand to go away, and with your left hand, push as hard as you can to be there, to hold it there. Notice what happens after just a few seconds. Keep your breath moving, push as hard as you can, notice what happens. That's what they're trying to help us understand happens on a broader scale, deeper scale, when we reject or contract or constrict and resist anything about the flow of life. If we perceive we must struggle, then we will experience struggle. If someone rejects their body, then their experience in it will be more difficult. Rejection is this low vibration energy because it is an occurrence of some part of all that is temporarily turning against all that is. 
and you'll experience the discomfort and or pain just like you will if you put your left hand against your right hand and try and push as hard as you can, trying to move one at the same time you're trying to resist the other. Acceptance, also called love. Right? They're saying love, allowance, acceptance, trusting, all the same, like the way of mastery would talk to us. Love allows all things, accepts all things, trusts all things, embraces all things. Love is acceptance. That's what they're saying here. This is a high vibration energy because it aligns with the innate natural unification that exists at the deepest level of our connection to all that is. If you exist, you're connected to everything else that exists. This is what Einstein was talking about. This is what the great physicists and philosophers, Indra's web is, is, is the concept of an infinite web of connection between all energies and physical matter, etc., like Planck's constant. It's the energy that connects everything in existence. Acceptance is the same as love. It's a high vibration energy because it aligns with the innate, natural unification. And this unification exists at the deepest level of our connection to everything else that exists, all that is. Rejection is an expression of fear. Acceptance is an expression of love. Yes, there are times that it is proper to reject something unloving or to intercede to stop violence. But here I'm speaking about rejection at its most fundamental level. That's in parentheses. Yes, there are times that it's proper to reject something unloving or to intercede to stop violence. But here I'm speaking about rejection at its most fundamental level. The source of all power lies beyond all form. Acceptance, then, is regaining power by relinquishing your need to resist what is when you do that you automatically take a step away from the illusion of form and naturally move closer towards the infinite powerful and peaceful formlessness that gave rise to the form in the first place now the thing that keeps coming to my mind here after reading that last couple paragraphs is the idea of being on a river and a canoe or a kayak. And allowance, acceptance, means going with the flow of the river, having my eyes wide open and scanning for things that might be below the surface that I could run into, scanning for things like branches hanging low that might knock me off my chosen conveyance out of the canoe or off of the kayak watching for fallen trees that weren't there the last time I went down this river. And the allowance and acceptance looks like being there, wide awake, seeing it, 
and then just using my paddle to change the direction of my canoe so that I veer around with the flow of the water itself, I veer around whatever there is in obstructing my path or directly in front of me. Rejection would be like being in that canoe and having a paddle at my disposal, but seeing something in front of me that wasn't there before that might block my way and just start yelling at it or thinking, this is wrong, this is bad, and I'm not using my paddle to redirect myself. I'm trying to insist that that thing shouldn't be there in the first place. And you might imagine how disastrous that would be for me if I'm in a canoe and there's a rock or a tree or a fallen tree or some garbage that someone has thrown in to the river or the stream that's above the surface. If I just sit there and complain about it, it's not going to go well. If I use all of my wisdom and resources and training and the paddle that's there and use it to go with the flow of water around the obstruction or to make my way to shore so I can pull the canoe out and walk around the obstruction and then put the canoe in another going with the flow this is the acceptance and the rejection is what leaves me unable to respond effectively and out of out of awareness of my true nature So essay number 50, the one I skipped over, reads, Happiness is always within you. And boy, this is a tough one for me and a lot of other people at different stages of our lives. But the essay reads, You do not need any single thing to be happy. Happiness is available in every moment at the root of experience. And if you want some examples of this, you can tap into the book Happy for No Reason by Marcy Shimoff, where she interviewed, I think she interviewed 100 people who were referred to her as uh, the happiest people they knew. And I think she's included 10 of the stories in her book, maybe a few more. But most of the people that she interviewed chose happiness in spite of life situations that most of us would call tragic or horrific. So, the essay again reads, you do not need any single thing to be happy. Happiness is available in every every moment at the root of experience. Yet, we experience unhappiness. We experience unhappiness because we buy into thoughts and beliefs about the current situation or the current stimulus that are counter to our true nature. So we're believing something that isn't true. It is never the situation or stimulus itself that causes us to be unhappy. It is our interpretation of the situation or stimulus that causes us to be unhappy. 
this goes back to conversations I've been having for the past few years about how it is far more useful for me to change the internal dialogue about triggering and the external dialogue about this situation triggered me or that person triggered me to be more fundamentally aware at a basic level that the event itself may have happened to me several times or dozens of times and I had either no upset or mild upset or severe upset at different times based on the interpretation that I chose and applied to that situation. It's never been the person triggering me or the situation triggering me. It's always in each new present moment the interpretation I choose and place on that situation or stimulus. The second paragraph here reads, the source of happiness is within you. You do not need to go anywhere to find it. You do not need to do anything or attain anything to be what you are. What you are is conscious awareness. And awareness, when it hasn't been obscured by getting lost in the illusion of form, awareness is profoundly blissful when it has not been obscured by getting lost in the illusion of form. When you allow yourself to go and let go and just be what you truly are, joy is always the natural experience. Joy is the native and natural state. In order to refamiliarize yourself with what you really are while you're inside this dream of physical life, you can allow yourself to completely let go, at least for a while, let go of all that you are not. By, for example, you are not your thoughts. You can let go of your thoughts. You are not your judgments. You can abstain from judging. You can let go of your judgments. You are not your expectations. You can release all expectations. You are not your beliefs. You can question every belief. You are not your responsibilities. You are not your abilities or disabilities. And you are not your pain. You are the awareness that beholds those things. You are the you that feels most like you to you. You are the you that feels most like you to you. You are the awareness that is, quote, wearing, close quotes, wearing those thoughts, wearing those judgments, wearing those expectations, wearing those beliefs just for a while. As awareness, you always have permission to let go of your thoughts about the present moment and to just fully experience the present moment for exactly what it is 
in total allowance, it says here, without any resistance or rejection. If you do so, if you do that deeply enough, you will find that beneath all the pain, there is always joy. Rumi has a quote, something to the effect of, all pain in the presence of love becomes medicine. Underneath the pain is joy. Awareness itself, when it is not attached to thoughts and judgments and beliefs and interpretations, is a bliss state. And the way to, to, to find that out for yourself is try it, practice. The next essay is titled, it's number 52, titled Growing Beyond Belief. And it reads, no matter what the belief, people will tend to find data to support it. In fact, over a lifetime, we tend to assemble complex fortresses of data to support what we already believe. And as we do this, most of us believe that our viewpoint is true and that others' viewpoints are false, or at least not quite as correct as our own. Furthermore, many people believe some forms, like ideas, beliefs, identities, or actions, some of them are inherently good, while others are inherently evil. To those who are so deeply accustomed to living in a universe of duality, this can seem natural. At the deepest level, there is fundamental truth with a capital T. And that truth transcends all of the form of the physical universe. It transcends all of the ideas of all the worlds, all of the beliefs, all of the objects, all of the contrast. While there is no word that can name it, since words are also from form, perhaps we can attempt to speak to what that capital T truth is by using this one simple word, capital L, love. And while forms themselves are not innately good or bad, since consciousness must always assign meaning to them in order for them to have meaning, the movement of consciousness through intent does either align more closely or less closely to truth or to divine love. This is why it is so very important to deeply explore the nature of our own motivations and to act from loving intent, because loving intent always aligns with truth, rather than fearful intent, which temporarily does not align with truth. Loving intent might also be described as selflessness, personal responsibility, humility, and acceptance. It includes the willingness to be wrong, to seek out truth and grow in the acceptance and service of others, even at the expense of oneself or at the expense of what one has previously believed. 
One of the main challenges is our beliefs tend to become invisible to us. They tend to appear to us to be assumptions about how reality really is rather than beliefs. In other words, our beliefs are set. Once they're set, the data that arrives almost always appears to support the existing belief. But in fact, the same data is being utilized by different conscious participants in different ways. We often don't think about spiritual growth in this way. Instead, we fight for the form. We try to make sure that our way of seeing the world is furthered. We worry about it. We fret and fight to make the rest of the world adapt to the correctness of what we believe to be right. However, the correctness of belief is not what the universe is about. We are here to develop the quality of our intent, the quality of ourselves as truly loving and authentic beings. We are here to face our fears and to accept personal responsibility. We are here to accept and support one another. That, far more than any claim of form, and again, form is belief and thought and dogma, that, far more than any claim of form, will further Source's plan. Source's plan is the ultimate loving intent for this universe. So, we had a hand go up, area code 828. Is this Magda? Yes, it is. Um, Welcome. Thank you. Here we go. Um, yes, I, I really have enjoyed your reading, and I'm glad you're continuing. And I also um, am very interested in your conception of the trigger. And, and it really has gotten me thinking about what else to call it instead of the trigger or my trigger. Uh, specifically, I put together a, um, a little um, uh, reality management sheet for myself some years ago, and I'm looking at it right now and realizing I need to change some words in there. And so I would like to get your opinion about what what I could change it to. It seems pretty simple to me. Let me just read the first sentence. My non-being mind seems to be upset because of my trigger. And you are then to name the person, place, thing, or situation, and then how I see it. And so I'm thinking instead of saying um, non-being mind seems to be upset because of my trigger, I could simply say because of and then name the person, place, thing, or situation. Does well, you that could make do it that sense? way, and, and that will be less mm-hmm. words. But to be more yeah. accurate in line with what we're talking about here, uh-huh. the way I do that this de- these days is to say, I seem to be upset because of the interpretation I'm placing on this, that, or the other. Okay, so in that case, it wouldn't really 
one wouldn't really name need to name the person, place, thing, or situation, because that would be contained in the interpretation. The how I see it is the interpretation. Yes, and the 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 purpose for naming what is the focus of my attention is so that I'll remember mm-hmm. it in the next weeks or years if I come back to this worksheet. So I, I put a little of the description of the life event or the actions of another person or the lack of action of another person that mm-hmm. I'm putting a negative interpretation on. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but I yeah. state clearly that I'm upset because of the interpretation I'm placing on what unfolded. Right, for sure. So would you say that again? My non-being mind seems to be upset because of the interpretation I have applied to... on this situation, whatever it is. A person said something... A person did something, a person didn't say something, a person didn't do something, the tree fell mm-hmm. on my car, the okay. car won't start, the economy's tanking. It's not those things. It's the negative interpretation I'm placing on those things that's causing my upset. Right. Now. And, and, and mm-hmm. I would take the word seem to be upset out of the phrase if you're modifying it this way. Yeah, right. Okay. I am upset because of the interpretation I'm placing on this situation or this person's actions. Terrific. That holds together. Good. Then let's move down to uh, three sentences, third sentence. Um, No, fourth sentence, the punishment. So it has been, I want to punish my trigger by, and I want which punishes me by, but in this case, how would the punishment fit? Does it fit at all? Well, it's still there, right? It, we, you don't need to change that because that's still the, the punishment thought is the operation of the mind that is still convinced that it's upset because of what somebody else said or did. How do I, how do I say that without using the word trigger? Punish somebody, something. I mean, well, uh, do you actually have uh, the word trigger in in your statement right now? I do. It says, "I want to punish my trigger by colon." Okay. Okay. Then just say, "I want to punish this person by." Okay. Or this situation. Or myself by doing this or that. The the word word trigger is unnecessary. Well, it's not always a person, though. Sometimes it's a a situation or a thing, um, you know, an an, an object. So I I feel like punishing something. (laughs) No, that's a little too broad. I want to punish... um, Hmm. I'm stuck here. Okay. If I had to do this, if you held me and said, look, we have to change this, I would simply say, mm-hmm. I want to punish what I perceive is causing my upset. Oh, cool. Okay. More words, but better. Yes. Yes. Okay. Very good. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
Um, yeah, this is, I really, I think this is a, a wonderfully subtle and yet important understanding of, of how our minds work and what we do with them. And the interpretation is the big thing. Well, it's yeah. been a very useful piece for my own personal work. Um, mm-hmm. And um, many people that I share it with don't like it, don't want to do it, they, they, they want to use the trigger, and that's perfectly okay. It just, uh-huh. for my clarity, and, and more often when I read these books like the one that we're reading now, and they, you know, they, they have a deep spiritual truth that's resonating and seeming to hold together for me, more often they're coming to the same conclusion, like this, this essay just said. Mm-hmm. And they're using the very same word. It's my interpretation that causes my upset, nothing else. Exactly, because, of course, it's all from inside us, and this just makes it more precise, that languaging. Um, and, I, and I totally, for me, this is a, a big step forward uh, to look at it this way, to think about it this way, because I remember being stymied by the, the belief that my trigger presented this, whatever it was, the, the words, the action, whatever it was. And therefore, it was hard for me to separate the fact that this person presented this situation. And, and my thought was, well, if she or he hadn't done that or said that, I wouldn't have been upset you know, because trigger really seemed to be a very yeah, trigger good trigger implies cause, right? Right, it but does. it implies we, cause. And uh-huh. and the the fact of the fact of the matter is, when you say I wouldn't have been upset, that's just a lie. My my mind is telling me because as I go along, if I have upset in me, and Michael Rice talks about this, you know, very clearly. He says if I'm going around and there's any kind of an upset in me, one of the ways he says it is. The purpose of life is to come along and kick me right in the limitations, right? Life is, is, its purpose is because life wants me to be happy, blissful, aware of my true nature, free of all of this negative baggage of beliefs and negative trauma energies and conclusions. And so if this person hadn't come along and said or done this that I interpreted negatively, Mm-hmm. Some other life event would have come along and given me an opportunity to choose a negative interpretation for it, mm-hmm. whether it's the traffic or, oh, my God, how bad would it be if somebody knew how disorganized my house was? I better not die because I don't want somebody to organize <laughs> to see how my house is disorganized or, you oh, my gosh. I Oh my gosh, I can't believe those people are saying that on TV. Don't they know that's going to ruin our youth, right? Life will come along as this infinite flow of expansion of creative energy and give me an endless series of opportunities to choose a negative interpretation that will stir up the stuff I need to get rid of to be happy in this moment. 
Absolutely, absolutely. However, if I if I'm not looking at it in the long, in the big picture way, as you just did, I can in a specific situation, I can put blame on someone or something else by using the word trigger, and so that helps helps me to escape my own responsibility. Yes, absolutely. One one of the things that came to me to say a long while ago, a number of years ago now, was um, an excuse doesn't have to be valid for me to use it. (laughs) 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 That reminds me of a gentleman I saw the other day. I don't remember where we were out and about. And... um, <laughs> this fellow was with his wife, and they're shop- yeah, shopping, Costco. And he's got this T-shirt that says, bigotry wrapped in a prayer. It's real bigotry. I liked it very much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So an excuse yeah. doesn't have to be valid to use it. For me to use it. And yeah. Guy Finley has another one where he says, you know, what my excuses do is simply buy me more time to suffer. Yes. That's the only thing they ever can or will do is buy mm-hmm. me more time to suffer. Yeah. Beautiful. All right. Well, thank you so much for helping me out with this word-changing and mind-changing uh, concept. And so I shall pursue that. And I'll have to go through the rest of the worksheet, too. I know every place where I've used my trigger <laughs> because actually it comes up a number of times. Pretty interesting. Um, okay. Thank you so much. And um, you're, you're show. most welcome and far more deserving than you yet know. I like that. I'll take it. <laughs> okay. Blessings. All right. Blessings. I'll mute you so you can listen to the rest of the show. We've got about uh, five minutes left for the first hour. If anybody wants to chime in, area code 610, Susan. Hi, Dr. Tim. Um, I wanted to ask you if Sundberg's use of the word fundamental is the equivalent of actuality and or formlessness. Yeah, it's it's what he's trying to point to with that is it's it's what actually is beyond our capacity to know it. Right. And so that's when you start reading, that's right. And he says that the foundation of the absolute foundation of your your true nature is this, the actual true nature that never changes. It's the kind of thing mm-hmm. that um, Ganga Ji points at when she says, um, when you sit to do a meditation, just start sitting and noticing everything that comes and goes. And after a while, as you notice more and more of what comes and goes, you're going to be left with that which never comes and goes, and that's your true nature. The essence of awareness, your ability to have any consciousness or awareness whatsoever, is fundamental. 
it's what you're going to find after you look at all of the stuff that comes and goes. What's, mm. what's your true nature? What's fundamentally true about you when you've let go of every thought and belief and dogma? Mm-hmm. You're, you're left with nothing and everything. You're left with awareness of your awareness. That's yes. <laughs> you know, the, the idea of choosing a word like fundamental is, again, as he talks about in some of his videos in the beginning of his book, we are trying to use words to describe things that go beyond words each new heartbeat. Right? So these yeah. words are not the thing. They're just pointing us in the direction of having an experience that will, can expand our knowledge base, our lived experience of self, and expand our awareness and our consciousness. Words don't do that. Words, at every level, words only limit our experience and our consciousness. Mm-hmm. So he tries to use words to point at something that words cannot describe. Mm-hmm. And the invitation is that each one of us become our own little experimental scientist. Try this idea mm-hmm. on. Try this worksheet out. Try this tapping. Try this breath work. Try this goal canceling. Try this journaling. Try, as Magda is doing right now, to change these words in your worksheet and see how it alters your experience of the process. That's the invitation in this work. Understand, you are your own scientist. You are your own reference point and expert. Your experience, your ability to tap into wisdom is the same as everyone else's. Remember that thing that came to me a few years ago? Wisdom cannot be possessed. It can only be accessed. And everybody has access to the same wisdom. Mm -hmm. Wisdom in that sense is the ability to be aware of and tap into and act directly from the truth of what is at deeper and deeper levels. And that's not something you can possess and it's not something that you can write of in words or speak of in words because it goes beyond all of that every new heartbeat. Is that a good place to stop since we've got about 50 seconds left? Sure. I do have a whole pile of other questions, but they'll do another day. We'll do on another day. All right. I'd be happy to entertain those questions when you call back tomorrow or whenever you have time. I'll mute you so you can listen in. Blessings. I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. And I will welcome Jeannie Rice and turn on her microphone. Thank you, Dr. Kim. appreciate it. You're very welcome and deserving. Have a wonderful show. Thank you. So welcome, everybody, to the second hour of MindShifters Radio. Today is Tuesday, May the 2nd, 
2023. And their call-in number is 563-999-3581 and press 1. And that puts you in queue to talk to us. And we'd love to hear your comments and questions because that makes this your chef. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, dear heart. We're going to have to uh, get your phone checked out because there's this for several weeks now when you're talking, there's usually this background kind of rumble in your voice, like the signals kicking in and out. In any event, delighted to be here. Delighted you're here to participate and lend an ear to our conversation. This conversation has been going on for, oh, well, we're in our 12th year, five days a week, an hour a day to assist in moving the mind from, there's so many different ways to say it, but from hostility and fear, from stress, from sympathetic dominance, from regurgitating the past as perceptual constructs of the mind and believing that what the mind is showing us is actually what's happening in the present moment. And just being trapped in its babble. You know, oftentimes the stories told by the mind are nothing but replays of generational patterns. And, and people tend to get so stuck in those patterns, it's hard to let loose of them. And that's the reason for forgiveness. And recognizing that forgiveness is not, I'm going to let you off of the hook for the pain that's moving inside of me or the conversation I'm having in my mind, forgiveness is how I go in and weaken the conversation that my mind just goes on and 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 on with. Time for us to put an end to those conversations. Time to, as you've heard me say many times, be out of your mind. And to be out of your mind, it's, it's logical that there'd have to be something you could trust other than your mind. And, and most of us have been taught that, well, whatever's going on in my mind is the truth about what's happening in the world. And my offering is, rarely is what's going on in someone's mind representative of the actuality of the moment. You know, I've used the example several times of... You know, you go into a courtroom where six different people are testifying about an accident they all were at. And when you listen to their descriptors, you wonder if any two of them were at the same accident. How could their descriptions be so different? Well, their descriptions are so different because each person who is a participant in or observer of an event in the world has a reality going on in their minds. The information that their minds served up that became their understanding of the situation. But when we look really closely, the reason everybody has a different story is because the event resonated different things inside of each person, and therefore each person had a different construct than each other person. The objective of this work is to get to the point where rather than living in babble, the mind telling its story over and over again, rather than believing that stuff, to apply forgiveness in order to weaken that stuff, 
that tends to make up the why is this happening to me again experience. And as we weaken that data and that information through forgiveness, actual forgiveness weakens the conversations of the mind. I was talking to someone this morning and I mentioned a passage that, uh, that just is so on track for this, and it's an example from the ancient scriptures. So there's an actuality that happens. This man enters what was called the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes through such a deep healing crisis that he actually physically sweats blood processes a great deal of suffering through his form and walks out renewed. Now, you remember that he brought three helpers along. He's like, I'm going into this Garden of Gethsemane to do some major work, and I would like some support. So you three, my top three trainees in this healing program, I want you to come with me to hold the space. Remember, he went into the garden, and within minutes, he taps into the energy of these guys that are supposed to be supporting him, holding the space for him, and he comes back out and says, can't you guys stay awake for an hour? Can't, can't you stay as conscious, active, present love for just one hour? And they couldn't, because they had not processed what he was busy processing, and that was death. So he comes out of the garden, and all of a sudden he's confronted. One of his disciples, before they went on this expedition, asked for permission to bring weapons. And he was told by Yeshua that he'd just need one weapon, one sword. That was it. So Peter brings a sword. Peter's bound to determine that he's going to save Yeshua from the demonstration that Yeshua has chosen to participate in. So Peter gets between him and the high priest servant and goes after the high priest servant, you know, ready to hack off his head. And fortunately, we're told, he just was able to hack off an ear. Now, there are a couple of things really important about this story in terms of our lives. One, it's an opportunity for Yeshua to deliver a very, very powerful message to John, to Peter, the one with the sword in his hand. If, if only the world would listen and actually hear the meaning of this message. If only the world had the eyes to see and the ears to hear this message. And he said, if you live by the sword you will die by the sword. Now, whether that sword is your words, your actions, or a weapon, by the use of that energy pattern, you will draw that to yourself ultimately. So, an important lesson. And then, as Peter is trying to, quote, unquote, save him, from the fate of the death that he's going to go through at the hands of the high priest servant, 
Yeshua directly calls Peter Satan. Peter says, well, we're going to prevent this from happening. That is, we're going to prevent the demonstration that you've set up from happening. Yeshua says, get thee behind me, Satan. And then what he, mean, he, he explains what he means in that context by calling Peter Satan. And he says, for you think in the mind of man rather than the plan of God. In other words, you're stuck in perception. You're stuck in the constructs of your carbon-based memory system, which is the residency of Satan. Satan is not a dude with a red suit, a tail, and a pitchfork. It's being stuck in the world of appearances. You remember you said another point, don't you? The mind's constructs, pretending that one's own internal dynamics are actually a representative of what's actually happening in the world. And they're not. It's just an appearance put in by the mind. For you think in the mind of man... In order to heal, you've got to be out of your mind. Your mind can only use content from the past, even if you update the content, like right now, in two seconds, that content is past. And if you update it again, in two seconds, that content is past. And if you update it again, in two seconds, it's still past. You can count on, you know, you've got a computer and of course, all this in, you can call on the computers from the past really useful. Gee, I need this information or that information or this or this or that from the past. You know it's something from the past, and you call it up as such. You don't pretend to yourself that it's actually what's happening in the present moment. But when the mind of man is active, it constructs a world that's very detailed and very tricky, and we think we're actually seeing what's outside of us and not realizing that what we're seeing, what we're feeling, what we're experiencing is a product of what's moving in the mind from the past. And Yeshua defined that as Satan. And then he does something monumental. Priest-servant, the arch-enemy, the bad guy, the evil one, the wicked one. You, know, you could take a whole list of superlatives. It's obviously the high priest-servant. Peter feels like everyone who attacks, Peter feels justified in attacking him because he's the bad guy. He hasn't heard yet that you're supposed to have a condition in your mind called Rachma when you think of what supposedly is the bad guy. And by, that, by doing that, you get to heal. So the high priest servant is injured by Peter's sword. What does Yeshua do? Does he continue to function along the lines of Peter, the attacker, living trapped in Satan in the mind of man? No. He actually steps up to the plate and functions Regardless of what the high priest servant, he knows exactly what's coming. He's proven how intuitive he is. He knows what's coming down the pike. 
But instead of getting caught in that, Yeshua functions as a human being. What is a human being? A human being is the conscious active presence of love. If the conscious active presence of love opens his eyes and sees someone injured and suffering, compassion moves forward, and that individual reaches out to offer support and healing, which is exactly what he did. He healed, we're told, the high priest servants here. Now, I've had people who've heard me tell that story and think about it for a second and say, well, you know, that's an interesting interpretation, but did you notice that doing that got Yeshua dead? And I say, yep, I noticed that, but did you notice that they couldn't keep him that way? They literally tortured and killed his body but he did not get lost in the appearance of that. And he said at the point earlier, it'd take three days to rebuild the temple. A temple is your own form. And he took three days and we're told rebuilt it and was back again. So if you notice that he was not demonstrating the power or the desirability of sacrifice and suffering as many portray it. Oh, go hang on the cross with him and then you'll be okay. Well, that'll get you nail marks in your hands and feet. It won't get you anywhere. But here's what will. Even if you were being attacked in such a situation as Yeshua was, if the only thing that drives your reality is conscious, active, present love, then the attack energy cannot destroy your body. It's a pretty high standard to step up to. And each and every one of us was conceived in and as love. Exists as love. And if not functioning out of and experiencing love, has work to do to clean up what's going on inside their own minds, the mind of man in them. Of course, not being sexist here, man, woman. So there's a work to be done. And the work is to be out of your mind. Remember, we've said this over and over. Step back and become the thinker apart from the thought, the feeler apart from the feelings, the actor apart from the actions. Be able to observe your mind in operation and recognize this is your mind and this is the construct that it's presenting to you. And there is a marker that tells you when its constructs are off base. If there's any form of hostility or fear that accompanies the construct of your mind in any given moment, that's a signal, that's information that tells you that your mind is using corrupt data to build its reality in that moment. And you want to be careful about buying it, accepting it, believing it, because if you do, 
as a creator, you'll just recreate your life out of that. When you recognize this is corrupt data, this is false, this is not the truth about me or life, and you remain present in your physiology and in your conversations as active present love, then you have claimed your actual human life because a human life is active present love, conscious in the moment. So where we want to go with this work is to tap everyone in the shoulder, of course, including ourselves, when something based in hostility or fear is surfacing, own that something, converse out of the space of willingness, willing to work through it, rather than just being trapped in its screaming, raging noise, and free yourself from its grip. And each time you apply forgiveness, you literally weaken the energy fields that come from the mind that with great oomph and emotion prove to you that your construct based in corrupt data is a lie. And so each time you apply the tool of forgiveness, what happens is you weaken the underlying energy patterns that produce your reality. There's actually a pretty interesting lesson, and I'm just, it's going to take me a second to open it. Course in Miracles. And give me a second here. We're going to look at what we need to, to be aware of under the surface. Excuse me for being distracted here for the moment. Can I help you find something? No, I'm just uh, just uh, opening it in uh, Google here. It'll just take a second. I'll tell you what, why, why don't you go ahead and uh, throw out a thought or two while I do this search. It's not coming up as easy as I thought it would. Okay, well, uh, I heard you, but I'm not sure I can follow the same train of thought that you're doing because I was preoccupied. Oh, you don't have to. They, 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 little just, one here. <laughs> yeah. So um, first thing I thought of, there was um, someone who I was working with last night, and one of the things that I pointed out, and I said, I wish I had recorded it because I think I need to hear it, um, is, you know, the reality of this is what they're doing to me may be true and it may not be true, and that our reality tells us based on past when something like this happened, 
that is what it meant, and that's what they're doing to me. I said, but you don't know, you know, when people get stressed, especially when they're ultra-stressed, they do what their power person did, and they do what they think they need to do to survive. And I said, perhaps a person is in such overload that they can't deal with anything else, and it's like, you know, just go away or go over here or go do this because I can't handle anymore. I can't think. I can't plan. I can't. I just can't. And I said, that may be what's going on for them, and you're taking it, oh, they're throwing me out. And I said, that may be the furthest thing from their mind, but they're just in such overload. I said, but we always know that what's going on in our reality is true about us. It might be true. It might be true about them, but we don't know that. Um, we do know that it's true about us. And so um, we, sorry, she just made a little mess here. Let me get it up before it dries. <laughs> we are painting rocks. <laughs> ah. So anyway, I was, uh, you know, trying to get the point across that, you know, instead of jumping to the conclusion to wait and to see, you know, what transpires and to weigh it out. And I said, always, I would suggest that, you know, you make a list. If I do this behavior, and this is probably the result I'll get from that behavior, or if I don't do this behavior, this is the result I'll get. And I said, then look at your list and decide which result you can live with. Because every action, every choice, whether it's a choice to do something or a choice not to do something, has a result. And I said, you need to look at, you know, okay, if I do this or if I do that, these are the results. And which one can you live with? And base your your next step, your next behavior, on that. So I hope that helps. Perfect. It helps someone else out there. I know it helped me. <laughs> Yay! Sweet. And sometimes I did. And and sometimes you know, just listening to what you're saying, isn't it true that uh, that old saying about it's sometimes hard to remember the objective was to drain the swamp when you're up to your sweet bippy and alligators. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> when the mind is doing its thing, it's um, it, it's a powerful trap, and you know that's why forgiveness is so important to weaken that trap and gain insight and pass its uh, get past its lies. So the, the chapter I was looking for is uh, chapter thirteen, section three: the fear of redemption. You may wonder why it is so crucial that you look upon your hatred and realize its full extent. You may also think that it would be easy enough for Rukka to show it to you and to dispel it without the need for you to raise it to awareness yourself. Yet there's one more obstacle you've interposed between yourself and the atonement that is coming back into direct relationship with the truth of who you are. We have said that no one will countenance fear if he recognizes it. Yet, in your disordered state of mind, you are not afraid of fear. You do not like it. But it is not your desire to attack that really frightens you. You are not seriously disturbed by your own hostility. You keep it hidden 
because you're more afraid of what it covers. You could look even upon the ego's darkest cornerstone without fear. If you did not believe that without the ego, you would find within yourself something you fear even more. You are not really afraid of crucifixion. Your real terror is of redemption. It's a powerful statement in terms of, you know, where we live really, truly doing our work. You may wonder why you must look upon. And to look upon it means you have to step back and become the observer. You can't have it with its fingers wrapped all around your face right to the back of your head and squeezing on your head and say, yeah, I'm looking at my hatred. No. No, your hatred's got you by the face. It's the ability, and we've talked about that over and over, the ability to step back and become the thinker apart from the thought, the feeler apart from the feeling, the actor apart from the actions. So this lesson goes on to say, under the ego's dark foundation is a memory of the creator, and it is this that you are really afraid Pardon me, it is of this. For this memory would instantly restore you to your proper place. And it is this place that you have sought to leave. Your fear of attack is nothing compared to your fear of love. You would be willing to look even upon your savage wish to kill your brother if you did not believe that it saves you from love. For this wish caused the separation and you have protected it because you do not want separation healed. You realize that by removing the dark cloud that obscures it, your love would impel you to answer to call and leap into that state of oneness that's been called heaven. So remember the, earlier they talked about in your disordered state of mind, you can proceed this with it. In your disordered state of mind, you believe that attack is salvation because it would prevent you from this. For still deeper than the ego's foundation and much stronger than it will ever be, it's your intense burning of love. This is what you really want to hide. In honesty, and of course this would be especially when under stress, is it not harder for you to say I love than I hate? Too many associate love with weakness and hatred, with strength. And your own real power seems to you as your real weakness. For you could not control your joyous response to the call of love if you heard it. And the whole, whole world through, pardon me, the whole world you thought you made would vanish 
powerful piece of, uh, of information. You may wonder why you must look upon. Take those words. And after those words, put anything in you that's based in hostility or fear. And most people don't want to look upon it and deal with it and process through it. Most people just want to talk about it. When we allow the mind to just run its mouth and run its mouth and run its mouth and run its mouth, we're constantly stuck in relationship with the trauma that lies beneath what one is running one's mouth about. And you want to stop that process at the past, collapse perception, collapse the constructs of your mind that are based in that dynamic. So that hostility and fear is removed from the picture, and the only thing left is the direct experience of conscious act-present love. And all realities, unlike that love, sooner or later need to be faced, embraced, that is the root of them be embraced. The surface mind's projections need to be collapsed, and that's exactly what forgiveness does. And when those projections are collapsed, because they collapse in on their own footprint, it gives you access to the underlying dynamic that has probably remained hidden not only your whole life, but in the life of your parents and their parents and theirs and theirs and theirs and theirs before them. So if the mind is generating a construct called hatred, the Course is saying, okay, so you've got this little tiny conscious piece of awareness, but underneath it there's something much bigger. And you want to drop into and embrace that something through active present love so that it can be dissolved in you. And that action is called forgiveness. Nothing to do with letting somebody else off the hook. Nothing to do with pardoning others, but simply as true conscious act of present love, accessing the underlying dynamic, canceling the goal, causing the perceptual construct of the surface mind to collapse and recognizing that when it collapses, when that construct collapses, it collapses in on itself and gives you access to what lies beneath and what really needs to be dealt with. And, and that's the action of forgiveness. The opposite of what the world teaches is forgiveness. So that's what we're here to do. And Miss Jeannie, when you, you shared, as I asked you to share something that you wished, and you'd said that to me earlier, that you'd wished you had recorded that session because it was some good stuff for you to learn. Does this passage, does this fit? Is it consistent with what your insights were yeah. as you were 
processing that. And that's actually one of one of my favorite. You know, I know a lot of times you will just quote the first part about you may wonder why you have to look upon your hatred and realize its full extent. But reading the rest of it to me is so powerful that it's you know not afraid of crucifixion, but your real real terror is redemption. And I think you know a lot of times. A lot of us have, um, you know, if, if we were redeemed from the, uh, rescued from the demons that are in us or whatever. Right, that's it. I'm on the radio show. Um, They're the only ones that, we need to be uh, rescued from, the ones within us. Yeah, but that if, if that happened, if the if the inner demon was gone, you know, then who would I be? It's like we have, yeah. you know, fought that demon and dealt with that demon for so long. And uh, and then for it to, you know, it's like part of our life. And, you know, who are we without it? Or, you know, how would I survive without it? You know, I don't know. There's just a lot of, of mixed thoughts around that. But, um, no, that's you know, right like on. That, I'm, that I'm passage. with you. Yeah. Well, it goes further in that lesson. It says you must look upon your illusions, and that's the pictures generated by the minds out of the mind energy unresolved from the past, and not keep them hidden because they do not rest on their own foundation. The underlying, as you're talking about the demons, that's a good way to speak about it. And, you know, I think it's so powerful when you recognize, if you look in the scriptures, that one of the, or one of the passages at least that talks about fear speaks literally about fear as a demon to be cast out. You know, perfect love casts out fear to get rid of that energetic dynamic. So, again, you must look upon your illusions and not keep them hidden. And what does everybody try to do? Fight against that which drives them to look at it or supports them to look at it. Argue, fight, struggle against it rather than taking a breath and going, well, let me see where this goes. And then recognize that these illusions do not stand on their own foundation, though in concealment they appear to do so. And they seem to be self-sustained. This is a fundamental illusion on which all of the others rest. For beneath them, concealed as long as they're hidden, is the loving mind that thought it made them in anger. And the pain in this mind is so apparent when it's uncovered the need of healing cannot be denied. Not all the tricks and games you offer can heal it, for here is the real crucifixion. And yet, one is not crucified. Here is both his pain and his healing. For Rukha, or what the Greeks called the Holy Spirit, Rukha's vision, remember that word in Aramaic, is the feminine elemental force in us that undoes the effect of our errors and teaches us the truth. So, so here it's saying, here is both the pain and the healing, for Rukha's vision is merciful and the remedy is quick. Do not hide suffering from her sight, but bring it gladly to her. Lay before Rukha's eternal sanity all your hurt, and let yourself be healed. Do not leave any spot of pain hidden from that light. And search your mind carefully for any thoughts you may fear to uncover. And when the mouth runs, that's, no, no, don't make me look. 
Baruch will heal every little thought you've kept to hurt you and cleanse it of its littleness, restoring it to the magnitude of the Creator. Beneath all the grandiosity, and what's the grandiosity? I'm right, you're wrong, it's settled, why argue? Beneath all the grandiosity you hold so dear is your real call for help. Call for the love of the Father as the Father calls you to himself. In that place, you have hidden. You will only to unite with your Father. So the hidden part of the mind says, I really need to be connected here. The separation excludes that solution. And then this lesson goes on to say, you'll find this place of truth when you see it in, your, in others. For even though they may deceive themselves, like you, they long for the grandeur that is in them, and perceiving you will welcome it. In perceiving it, you will welcome it, and it will be yours. Grandeur is the right of yours as the offspring of the Creator. And no illusions will ever satisfy you or save you from what you are. Only love is real. And you will only be content with your reality. Save your brother or your sister from their illusions that you may accept the magnitude of your father in peace and joy. And then here's a big kicker. <laughs> because most everybody's got a file of exclusions. You know, There are certain categories of people, whether it's because of uh, well, all the conversations going on in the culture today that allow supposedly religious people to exclude others. You know, certain sins that just aren't acceptable. But here, what the Course says is, exempt no one from your love, or you will be hiding a dark place in your mind where Rukka's healing is not welcome. And thus you will exempt yourself from her healing power. For by not offering total love, you will not be healed completely. Healing must be as complete as fear, for love cannot enter where there is one spot of fear to mark its welcome. In other words, anytime any kind of fear comes up, apply forgiveness and it collapses. And when it collapses, it makes a space for love to expand and dissolve whatever's at the root of it. Powerful lesson. Exempt no one from your love or you will be hiding a dark place in your mind where healing is not welcome. What a powerful piece of advice. And think about the people that are on your list. You've exempted them. Exempted. So any other thoughts for you, sweetheart? Make sure we don't have a hand up. We don't. Um, I was just thinking when you were talking about the get no one from your love, and I won't go into detail on the show, but 
I had an experience of that several years back where I really tapped into embracing this other person in my life that they were just, you know, I enjoyed being with them and they were sweet and precious souls. And I shared with them that I didn't believe in their lifestyle, that I didn't think it was right. However, I wasn't the judge of their lifestyle. They had to live with their choices. Right, yep. that it was their choice. And like I said earlier, every choice has a result. And uh, I wasn't responsible for that. However, I wanted them to know that even though I didn't agree with their lifestyle, that I really felt love towards them. And they hugged me and they thanked me for sharing it. And we went on with the rest of the workshop. And later I shared that experience with a former pastor. And it was like, for the first time, I really felt like I had experienced when Yeshua said, you know, talked about loving everyone, and yet you didn't have to love their sins, their work, their behaviors that were off target, but that we were to love everyone. And I shared that with this pastor, and he said, I will pray that God brings you down. And it was <laughs> But I, I remember that so clearly that it was just awesome to embrace someone that previously, you know, I would have been taught in the church to exempt them, that they weren't worthy yep. of Condemn them. You know, their sin was greater, yeah. And Exclude them. It was like bringing them in back in the fold and being like, you are okay, you really are. And and then having a, a person that's supposed to represent God um, say he's going to pray that he brings me, that God brings me down for believing that way or embracing this person because of their lifestyle. Like, to actually embracing crazy. someone he was condemning in active present love. Right. You know. And actually, when I turned that question over to you, I was actually thinking about that particular event. I know exactly the event you're talking about. And just as a refinement, when you think about that, were you actually loving him or were you, in spite of what your churchianity had told you to do with him, were you really tapping into the truth of who you were and being able to just really be with him as he truly is, as right, love? Exactly. All, all the rest of it just is details. But I, I, you know, I remember that so clearly, and it was so powerful to watch you in that space, and the ability to be loved. Now the challenge is, <laughs> these instructions will, you know, <laughs> destroy self-destruct in five seconds. The challenge is, who else have we got judgments? What else have we got judgments about that we need to do that exact same thing? That's the guy the, in the <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Powerful. Powerful, for sure. Well, we're down to about 15 minutes. So I wonder if we've got anybody out there in the uh, phone queue with a hand up or anything in the chat room, and if you've got a something we can support you with in comprehending this conversation. 
What's on your mind? If you're on one of those stations where we can't see you, our call in number is 563-999-3581. If you call that number, you'll be listening to the show live. And then if you push one, we have that will one. raise a hand in the control panel. Great. Let's say hello. I believe it's Miss Susan, 610. You're on the air. Hi. Well, you've got Welcome your finger to your heart. Hi. Hi. Uh, amazing talk. Um, yes, there are always people who we have exempted. We think we've gotten rid of them. So I have a little testimonial from my daughter. She was at a ceremony for her boy, Max, who got his Eagle Scout badge or whatever it is. It's a ceremony when he was made an Eagle Scout. And, of course, Ryan. his father was going to be there, too. And my daughter has told me about how terrified she is to even be near him because she feels this visceral fear and a loss of her own centeredness and strength and everything. So she was breathing and getting herself ready to be there. And then there he was. And it was a small hall, so they couldn't sit very far apart. And at one point, everybody stood up to do whatever it was. And she, all of a sudden, sort of heard in her head, go over there and introduce Mm. your new husband to your old husband. Go over there. Mm. So she went over, and she said, I want to introduce you to Chris. And Chris held out his hand, and they shook hands. She said, J.D. did not look up. He wouldn't look at them at all. And as soon as the ceremony was over, he fled with his fiance. And my daughter was there, but she said, Mom, I feel as if a huge weight has been taken off of me. So it's sort of like that. I think that gesture was a kind of forgiveness thing. It was, I don't know what you call it. Well, you know, here would be here would be my way of explaining or understanding what just happened, and it's based in the command that says, "Honor thy father and thy mother." She honored him, you know, even though she was terrified. She chose. There was terror in her, resonated by him, and she chose to honor him and step forward as a human being and passing the active presence of love through her physiology toward the person who could resonate her deepest terror healed her terror. It had to pass through that pain in her for her to experience the healing. And that's what I would hear as this burden was lifted. And, and it, it ties right in with the principle behind that, that commandment that says, honor thy father and thy mother. To, to do behavior based in love toward is to honor. And, and in their presence, everything I've not resolved is going to be resonating. And the more powerfully I can honor, I can step up as love and express that toward them, the more powerfully I get to heal. Well, that's what she said happens. She said it's miraculous for her. But she just feels as if, uh, and she's been paying child support to him, which is really amazing. He got a lot out of her at the, at the trial because it didn't go to trial. She didn't want to put her youngest boy on the stand. So right. she, 
she forfeited a lot of her entire inheritance from her grandmother, Tim's mother, for instance, um, went to him. And he not only asked for child support until the last boy graduated high school, but he has attached her her um, retirement pension. He's going to take half of her pension when she retires, which is just amazing. He's a wheeler dealer, to be sure. And with all that, she could still do that, which is amazing. And I have another part of the story is Luke was there. And Luke gave a little speech. He got up and he said, one of the happiest moments of my life was when I was six years old, when my little brother Max was born. And I had fantasies in my mind of how I was going to mentor him and teach him and show him how to do things. But he said, it didn't work out that way. Max has been my mentor for many years. So I just thought that was very cool. Wow. (laughs) What an acknowledgement. Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah, he's a good boy. He's hanging on. And that's pretty much the report. But anyway, it fits into, you know, people sit in that slot of, oh, I can't forgive that person. But sometimes the person who may have been the one most painfully situated in your life, can, you can, if you can do it with them, I guess you can do it with anybody. Yeah, and of course, I'll parrot the oldest line in this work that I can think of, and that is, please, please, please never forgive anybody for anything. Pardon them if you choose to, but do the internal work of collapsing the perception based in your own pain. Bring love through the part of you that holds that pain by extending it to them and thereby healing yourself. That's the Mm. real forgiveness work. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it, you know, when you, when you look at it from a bird's eye view, like we're talking about right now, you can see how, like, just tremendously challenging, difficult, or almost seemingly impossible it would be to do that if you didn't have a full understanding of the principles for how the mind works and how physiology stores those energetic patterns and how love heals them. It, it, it would just, it's like, I, I can see, I can easily understand why it all got turned backwards and I'm supposed to let them off the hook for the pain inside of me mm-hmm. rather than I'm going to bring love through the pain inside of me to heal it. And I do that by offering it to them because it's in their space that my pain resonates most deeply. Um. <clears throat> So the principle is just so imperative to understand, especially if we've been brainwashed in the old, going to forgive them, to be able to really truly let go of that Mm. and then recognize that the construct my mind has for them that's based in pain is my pain and I need to forgive as to my pain to remove that pain from myself by bringing love, the active healer, through the part of me that holds that pain. So to me, it's such an important principle to understand, to shed ourselves of that old idea of letting others off the hook. Oh, I forgave them. They made me mad. They made me sad. The whole denial game that just ultimately needs to go. Mm Mm-hmm. 
because it doesn't do anything. So, yeah, so thank you yeah. for bringing that up because it's right on track. So I had another totally, totally, totally different out-of-the-ballpark question. Let's go for it. Okay. I was telling you about this Christian mystic yesterday, John St. Julian Baba Wanayama. Wanayama. Anyway, I have a nephew who is transgendered from, from a little girl, and he was talking about how... Um, first of all, this big issue of transgender business is such a distraction from the serious issues, I think, like climate change and guns and um, political enmity and all that stuff. There's a lot of, it's like, um, it's a distraction, but he addresses it by saying we were made male and female and we, we really should stay that way. And his talk was most gentle. It wasn't confrontive or anything. But he basically comes out on the side of saying we need to work with who we are within our gender and not try to, you know, have operations and adjust ourselves and so forth. And that may may not be ultimately true. But my question is, first of all, my nephew was born a girl but saw himself as a boy from the very right. youngest age and he came across mm-hmm. as a boy. He wanted his hair short, he wanted to wear boys' clothes and my I've told you about him. My my grandson William, age four or five, says, Mom, Edie's a boy and of course I say, No, Edie's a girl. No, Edie's a boy, he says to me, with most certainty, as if he really knew who Edie was. And mm. there has been some medical um, research on this. Evidently, the gender of a child comes to the child in two increments. The physical is is arranged first, and Edie was made into a girl. But the brain is... The brain association with gender comes a little later. And with most of us, it's aligned with the physical, but not always. Once in a while, you get a girl who's a girl, but brain-wise, she's a boy. And I don't know anything about the science, or even if it's true. This is something I read. But I thought, boy, is this a perfect example in this little niece I had of somebody who really is a boy but just didn't have the physical arrangements and what she went and did she spoke to her parents as a teenager she said mom and dad I've got to do this either I do it while I'm in high school and you oversee it or I do it in college when I don't have your oversight but I'm going to do it so they said all right right, wonderful people let's do it and the parents were very very anxious it isn't that they didn't think it was right or moral they didn't think it was morally wrong but you know you remove your breasts and you have hormones injected that have effects and so well long story short he's finishing college he's five foot eight or nine he's a, a good looking man and he's so happy 
he he's loving his life. He loves to go hiking. He's got a girlfriend, and I want. And what I did with this uh, with this Saint John Saint Julian is I actually put in his comments. What about this? I'm eager to have his answer. What he might think of my question about what about this? Isn't there a time when maybe this is the right thing to do? I think in many cases it is not. Um, it's probably hasty and politically correct or seems trendy or like tattoos even. It can be a choice that somebody may regret later. But in his case so far, he's much happier as a man. So right. I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that. Well, much like the story that Jeannie was just sharing, and it was a situation where there was a gay man who was sponsoring us in some workshops and actually put us up while we were in the city speaking. And there was a little bit of trepidation on Jeannie's part because her religious upbringing had put some very powerfully derogatory labels on that behavior. And right. as she came to know him as a person, my my take would be, and and it's kind of my position, is like, is it my business? Not my business. Yeah. My business, my job assignment from the creator is to function with Rachma in the presence of love, not to mm-hmm. determine who should do what or who shouldn't. Yeah. So that would be that's kind of my my take on it. My job is to support and be the presence of love for each and every person that I contact that when I can't to recognize I have work to do. If that brings yeah. up something less than love in me, that's my work. Mm. That's good. So I'd be interested in hearing what this response is. And if you uh, if you have a link you could send me, I'd like to check out some of what this person's um, recordings are saying. Yeah, I sent his name to Jeannie in a text yesterday. And all you do is go on YouTube and punch in his name, and huh. you'll see okay. lots of presentations. We'll do it. Yeah. Awesome. All right, young lady, we're, we're down to the last few seconds. The show is actually going to cut us off. So cue again for your input. And everybody, have the best year yet of your eternal life. It's an awesome awesome gift to give the world. Blessings.